0: Hey everybody, this is Sean. I'm the head of marketing at Humanoids, and we have a very special episode of Humanoids. This is our podcast celebrating all of our authors and books. So today we have Mark Ellison. He's one of the co-authors of A House Without Windows. He is an accomplished photographer, writer, and sequential storyteller. So in this book, he unites with cartoonist Didier Kasai to talk about the plight of the Central African Republic, and the children who grow up in a state of insecurity, poverty, and malnutrition. So Mark and Didier went to the Central African Republic, took pictures, interviewed these children, and they go through the various trials they face in this country that's torn apart by a government that's failing, a militia, as well as the helpful charities, like Doctors Without Borders, helping to maintain some stability in medical care for this country. Mark is based in Scotland, and he is an award-winning photojournalist, so he's spent a lot of time in Africa, and he's addressed such topics as girl soldiers in Uganda, practices of female genital mutilation, topics on child marriage in Tanzania, sex workers facing the prevalence of AIDS in Mozambique, and health challenges in Sudanese refugee camps. So he's seen a lot, and he's doing amazing work overseas to help bring some attention and some narrative to these people who don't have voices. So here is Mark Ellison on the latest episode of Humanoise. Mr. Mark Ellison, how are you doing today? I'm not too bad, how are you? I'm absolutely fantastic. Thank you so very much for taking the time to chat about A House Without Windows. That's right, my pleasure. So I wanna talk about Basically, the backstory of this, because I kind of came into this with the assumption that you were hired to do some photography overseas uh, when you went to Africa, but it sounds like you were a lot more hands-on with Doctors Without Borders. Can you talk about kind of the origin of how you ended up in Africa? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've
1: I've had a long-founded uh, interest in the continent, and I've I've worked on many many projects um, across Africa since twenty eleven, actually. Um, and so I've I've got a real passion for telling stories there, and particularly, you know the so-called untold stories and um, and one of those that really sort of caught my interest was the, the ongoing conflict in Central African Republic. Um, now we know, you know, the, the conflicts in countries like um, the Congo and South Sudan are fairly well, well publicised, but I don't, I, you know, I think even today not, not a lot of people know about the ongoing conflict in Central African Republic. And they probably had never even heard of the country, let alone being able to point to it on a map. Um, so I was I was really keen to try and do um, another graphic novel project around around that conflict, um, but particularly how it impacted young children. Now I was fortunate enough to be able to finance this trip through a grant from the European from the European Journalism Centre, and I'd won a grant from them previously to do another graphic novel project. And I mean, in terms of my background, you know, I, I I'm sort of. uh a jack of all trades, master of none, really, in the sense that you know, I, I do the interviewing, I do the photography, I do the production work, uh, so I do a little bit of everything. Um, the only thing I can't do is draw, and so that's where Didier Kasai came in. I mean, I I often joke that you know I can't uh, I can't draw a circle, and so um, I knew that I wanted to work with Didier on this project, and then it was just a case of of figuring out you know which which sort of themed stories we want to to draw upon. Um, But also, um, I mean, in in terms of Doctors Without Borders, they sort of came into play for, for for a couple of reasons, really. I mean, one, obviously, they're they're basically the de facto health service uh, in a country that really doesn't have a health service, but also they were really able to help with uh, logistics because Central African Republic is is a huge country, so getting around anyway would be challenging within the limited time that I was there, but also just because there is an ongoing conflict, it's quite dangerous to do so. Many of the uh, many of the roads, are, you know controlled by militia, basically. So MSF were were helpful in not only allowing me to sort of see the work that they're doing uh, to, to help children, but also, you know, being able to get me around the country as well. And, you know, and, and I worked with a couple of other partners out there as well, like um, UNICEF, a local, organ- a local organization called Void de Coeur, which works with um, street children. And so, you know, so, so, so Didier and I sort of worked, I think, quite well together in a sense, obviously, he was the one, you know, creating the sort of his wonderful watercolored illustrations. And I did my best to complement those with with photography and video.
0: Okay, so when you went down in 2016, I I think you saw this country that was divided by so many different factions. What was it like Mm -hmm. to navigate that? Did you ever feel like your personal safety was at risk while you were doing your photography?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean um it's 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 the first time i mean i I typically um bill myself as a as a post-war journalist in the sense that i'm typically working in uh post post post-conflict societies such you know northern uganda for example um and so this was really the first experience of my working in uh something of a more volatile uh situation um so you know great great care was taken um not, not to avoid those volatile areas, but to do so to to travel to them responsibly. And so often that meant basically um, partnering with local organizations that, you know, you could stay with them in their sort of guarded compounds. Um, you'd, you know, you'd organize regular check ins throughout the day. So basically, if you didn't check in, they'd basically know that something might have happened and to start raising alarm bells. Um, yeah you know, and, and also just you know just, just relying on a sixth sense sometimes when you get you know your sort of spidey senses start tingling that maybe it's time to time to get out of a particular situation and um and I mean for for the most part did, Didier and I were able to navigate that you know the dangers quite successfully um the only sort of circumstance where things got a little bit where you know a situation where things maybe could have gone a bit awry was um you know we visit a couple of diamond mines. Often these diamond mines are um, guarded and run by uh, local militia. we were basically finds um, speaking to the children um, who were working there asking you know wh- why they were working there and what the conditions were like. And we were almost done for the day actually when basically a couple of armed men <laughs> came up to us and um, quite politely sort of escorted us to go see effectively the, the the head of the militia. He was basically wanting to know you know who we were, what we were doing, why we were there. To this day, I, I still don't quite know how we got out of that unscathed, or at least without him demanding to see our footage or deleting the footage. Um, but I mean, very quickly, my uh, my translator um, sort of whispered to me, says, you know, I, I, th- I think we need to get out of here um, because even though he seems to be okay with us being here, I got a feeling you know think things could could get heated quite quickly. So we you know at that point we quickly got onto uh, onto the motorbikes and and, and left the, and you know and left the scene so to speak. But you know th- that that was really you know one of the very one of the very few instances where you know we felt unsafe um, and also I mean it, it was not only how we navigated certain volatile situations, but it was also a lot of that was down to the wonderful work of, of people like Doctors Without Borders. So an example of that is um, the team that I was with in Cabo which is in the north of the country, which is really in the middle of nowhere almost on the border of Chad. Um, and so if anything happened to you there, I mean people wouldn't know about it for days. Um, and the team there um, had very had a very close relationship with the local militia. Um, just so that, you know, they, so it was sort of a, uh, a relationship where, you know, they were constantly informing the militia where they wanted to go to maybe do, you know, a vaccination program or something like that. So just trying to keep on the same page as the militia and keeping up something of a a relate of a, you know, good, good relationship with the militia, I I think helped our work there that, you know, by partnering with MSF, it ensured that, um, well, and, and we even wore MSF armbands actually as well. So that we were... Almost seen part of their team, so that you know, if there was any funny business, hope, well, hopefully there wouldn't be any funny business with uh, with the militia. So, um, so yeah, so so those were sort of some of the, some of the ways that we were able to avoid any trouble.
0: Uh, and what kind of drew your eye to exploring the youth in this country? Why was that the focus?
1: Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's it's been an ongoing interest in actually the majority of my. Graphic novel projects that I've done. So, you know, I've, I've looked at, for example, uh, female child soldiers in the past in Uganda. I've looked at female genital mutilation, child marriage in Tanzania. And, and I, you know, I, I hate to use the cliche, but it's, you know, it's a cliche for a reason that um, we, we we want to give a voice to the voiceless. And um, and these, these kids often have been orphaned by the conflict and they're working minds on the streets. And so they really, they don't have much agency or or opportunity to, to tell their stories and often because they are young and vulnerable you know they're, mo- they're most vulnerable to sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, hunger, disease so you know the whole point of this is really to sort of show just how um, you no know, conflict affects kids and um, you know I, I, I think I think in our minds we sort of think well yeah duh of, co- of course children are going to be affected but it's it's one thing to sort of make that conclusion in your head, but it's another, it's another to hear these uh, kids' stories. It's another thing entirely to, you know, be immersed in the 360 video and see these kids working in these horrible conditions in mines, or, uh, you know, living a life on the street, um, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely relatable and tangible throughout the book. What shots were the most memorable to you looking back on the book? Were there stories that were etched behind any specific photographs?
1: In, t- in terms of some of the
0: stories that I heard that were particularly
1: shocking, it was I mean, not so much, I guess, some of the photographs, because you know, we didn't photograph all the kids because they they didn't want to be photographed, which was understandable, but where they're talking about um the abuse that they faced, be it sexual abuse or bit be- being set on fire by other street children, you know, that was, was horrible to hear. Mm-hmm. I think I think I think just I mean, you get a sense of it in the three sixty video, but also just being stood there myself in the in the middle of that one diamond mine and you know seeing these kids as young as 13 you know working these really long days in you know very formidable conditions you know it's extremely hot they're at risk um throughout the day of the of the mine collapsing in on them and just hearing you know just why they're there you know the, the fact that um you know their parents have been killed by militia during the conflict um that they're now solely responsible for you know, for for their siblings, for, for their grandparents. You know, I, I I try and think of my niece. You know, having being forced to live in such conditions as well, and you know, it, it's 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 really horrible. But um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, those are just a few of the things that, that spring to mind.
0: Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is how you veer from color to black and white. What was the decision making to go from monochrome to something a little bit more vibrant?
1: There was no sort of rhyme, necessarily rhyme or reason behind it. there, there were just some images that you know cried out to be in you know full fully saturated color you know like the the ones where you see the, the images of the kids for example panning for gold or you know in you know in in the actual mine where you know you've got this really sort of golden soil whereas some of the others I wanted to be a bit more stark you know we we see uh you know a young street kid you know holding up his catapult in, in when I was editing the photos you know often I'll I'll, I'll play around with with different Finishes and 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 the black and white really was just a lot more impactful, I think, than 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 color. So, I mean, the, there wasn't really any specific uh, reasoning behind, you know, wh- you know which
0: which photos were black and white and which were color. Yeah. So, I mean, also thinking about the process with uh, Didier Kasai, mm-hmm. how did you dovetail and kind of harmonize a narrative? Did you write a script first and then inject your photos around it? What was that creative process like?
1: It was very much a
0: collaborative experience, uh, which was
1: wonderful. I mean, so it, I mean, even even being in the field, I mean, typically I would take the lead on, on on leading the interviews, and and Didier would be there, you know, chipping in with additional questions if he had any, and and also often with the graphic novels that I've done, I want to try and make them as realistic as possible. So often, you know, we're we're asking, you know, what what sort of clothes were the, for example, militiamen wearing? You know, what's the layout of the village? You know, when uh, just so we can try and make it as realistic as possible. And so Didier was often sort of sketching that during the interview and sort of showing it to the children that they could then, you know, suggest uh, tweaks or, you know, saying, oh, yes, it was like that, or maybe it was more like this. And then when it came to the production of it, because by that point I was actually back in Scotland, so obviously the uh, the challenges of, of trying to write the script uh, when we're in different continents. So typically what I, what I do is I create some, a Google spreadsheet and then, Uh, So I'm sort of I've got um, the the rough bits of dialogue that I know that I want to have and the narration and then I I typically have a separate column where I sort of put suggestions in for the artist sort of saying you know here I think maybe we can show this or show that and then obviously yeah the great thing that being a Google document is that Didier can can read it and then he can add his suggestions um, or tweak the script so that you know just in case maybe I, I get something wrong or it's not clear, so it's it, so it's a really collaborative process, and and I mean, and, and, in, and in terms of when I wanted to include, for example, photographs or, or uh, three hundred and sixty video, the reason that I my graphic novels aren't purely illustration is because I'm I see the graphic novel typically as a sort of time machine when I'm telling these sorts of stories. So the illustrations allow us to basically tell a whole sort of story, a person's story in the past, but then bring it back to modern day, and so often. I use photographs as that bridge to to bring it back from the modern day. And and also, you know, that I I found that it was, I also use photographs to to often break up if if there were too many pages of illustration in in a row, I often wanted to have a photograph to bookend maybe certain narratives to remind people that um, this isn't fiction, that this is um, that these are very real stories because otherwise I feel that you know after if you're reading maybe a dozen pages of just of just illust- of illustrated uh, stories that you know it's pos- it's possible that the reader might sort of slip back into that mindset of oh you know this this is fiction so I would try and as I said bookend some of these narratives with photographs just to sort of to remind people that that you know these are really very real things that these children have have been through.
0: So I was curious if any other narrative or focuses were in your head. Like I, I know that. Being in media, you have to edit and hone down all this information you have. When you were there, were there was there anything else you could picture being its own graphic novel as far as topics to explore?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Ashin. And, and yeah, I, I have a good answer for you. Um, so, I mean, it, it's touched upon very, very briefly um, in the street children chapter, basically where there's a very high prevalence of children being accused of witchcraft. Oh, wow. Uh, uh which was which was fascinating and um and so we we did interview s- some kids about that. we interviewed some uh some police about you know cases of children being accused of being brought in. I can still remember talking to one senior police officer who very much believed in witchcraft and even i mean it's strange credulity to be honest, but he uh sorry, she was telling me that um she was sat there um interrogating this child accused of witchcraft, and suddenly cockroaches started coming out of his mouth. Um, which was obviously a sign that he was a witch, but anyway, I, I found that really interesting, and and so it, it is very briefly mentioned in House uh, without Windows, but um, I, it, it wasn't as central to to the theme of how conflicts has impacted these kids. Um, so I basically I, I didn't use a lot of that material. But funnily enough, just about a year or so ago, I, you know, I was keen to to do a a graphic novel around that. And so um, I did actually do something similar, but in uh, the Niger Delta, uh, looking at children accused of witchcraft. And I did do an online graphic novel for Al Jazeera, uh, looking at that, which again, was sort of similar format. And, uh, you know, I worked with a local Nigerian artist, um, and it was a mixture of illustration, video, and photography. Uh, We even managed to get into a couple of exorcisms and so you know which was particularly shocking
0: um yeah well it's interesting that you discuss that because i remember the part in the book where they talk about a girl who would cry a lot as a baby and Mm. the uh conclusion wasn't necessarily that you know she had a medical malady it was that she was possessed Mm -hmm. but then it, it also kind of dovetails along with the central theme that you have all these different belief systems clashing and converging in this country mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that so much of this strife is ideological and religious so mm-hmm. i mean that's such a that's such an interesting extrapolation of the general fault lines that run throughout the book
1: i mean certainly cultural cultural beliefs as you as you say and and ideological beliefs and um but i think that also speaks to how pe- people have re- referred to to the conflict in Central African Republic is uh, a forever war. The fact that there's been this history of uh, cyclical conflict, um, and basically there's, there's been rebellions and coups um, that have spotted the country's history since 1960, and and so you can only imagine uh, the impact that's had on education, um, and and obviously it's, it's through education often that you know we we can recognise that maybe certain cultural beliefs are maybe grounded in reality, be it, for example, witchcraft, and, and, you know, and and Didier is is a perfect example, you know, Didier was, uh, certainly did not (laughs) believe in witchcraft, and so, you know, in the current conflict, I mean, the the latest UNICEF figures, for example, UNICEF figures tell us that the schools are still occupied by armed groups, and that uh, I think it's over 900 are non-operational as a result of fighting, and that half the country's children are out of school because of conflict, so, you, you know, you can only imagine that since, you know, since the 60s, the country's been... In turmoil, and you can you can only imagine what impact that has had on obviously the economy, but also you know uh, the education of the country's children, uh, and that obviously has a knock-on knock-on effect on in terms of you know what beliefs we, we maybe have you know for example such as in witchcraft.
0: Reflecting back on this graphic novel and your experience, what were some of the most hopeful things you saw that may lead to a better future for this country? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah it's it's a good one i mean the overall you know I, I came away and as much as i wanted to be optimistic um i i think i think the country is is a ways away from uh being stable and for the picture looking uh brighter but i mean certainly there were you know there were windows of hope um although very few you, you know you you've got Local partners, such as, you know, as I mentioned, trying to help street kids. Um, You've got, uh, you know, Doctors Without Borders who are doing a wonderful job, as I said, effectively providing a de facto health service for for the country, you know, beyond... The the foreign assistance that is is being provided in the country the, the bright points were were very few and far between. I guess I guess it's a difficult question to answer because <laughs> there, there were so sort of few few moments of help uh, of hope. Sorry, um, out, out, I guess outside of uh, the assistance that that I saw being given, be it you know by by local organisations or uh you know the international organizations so it's you know i I have quite a sort of depressing answer to that question
0: unfortunately well you know stemming from that for people who read a house without windows what's the best step to try to help a country like the central african republic obviously as you know as as a journalist um we we strive for
1: the impact um and so Obviously, first and foremost, it's, it's it's you know trying to inform and educate people about about the country, about what's going on, about how kids are being impacted, um, and I, and and probably the, the most probably the most tangible way that people people could probably help would just be through you know maybe looking at the varying options of. Organizations that are working out there, um, and potentially, you know, making a donation. Uh, actually, another organization that I, I f- haven't mentioned actually yet that I collaborated with, who are doing wonderful work, is the Norwegian Refugee Council. So, obviously, you know, you can go to, you can go to their website or the UNICEF website, um, the Wada website, website, uh, Doors Without Borders, and, and obviously make a donation. And that's probably that's probably the best way to to try and make a difference, um, as well as obviously. You know, t- telling friends and family about about the book and about you know what they've learned, and um, it's um, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I mean, and I, I should say that the the conflict has sort of resurged again actually since December because of a con- contested election and so outside of the capital city I mean the government really doesn't have much control of the country and so so even the government itself isn't really able to, to do much about what's going on in the country and, and try and fix things and so yeah probably the best way to try and to, to try and make a contribution is as I say is probably through donations to one of these partners that I've mentioned
0: Great. And uh, just so everybody knows, we're giving a proceeds of the sales of A House Without Windows to Doctors Without Borders. So, by buying the book, you are indeed helping this situation.
1: Oh, oh fantastic.
0: Yeah. Uh Mark, uh, that about wraps it up for any questions I have. Is there anything you wanted to add at all?
1: Um I I don't think so. I th- I, th- I mean, I th- I think we've covered I think we've covered most things. Uh yeah, I mean, I, I think I've obviously I've, I've touched upon the 360 video yeah, I, I don't think there's anything else that I I can think of off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, fantastic, Mark. Thank you so very much for taking the time to chat. That's all right. Yeah, no, do, do doing my best without having had a uh, coffee this afternoon. So. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can remedy that right after this. Okay. A huge thank you to Mr. Mark Ellison for joining us to discuss a house without windows. Proceeds of profits from buying this book go to Doctors Without Borders. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back with Mr. Matt Fraction to discuss the enduring legacy of the Meta Barons.